Hello, you are listening to the Breakfasters podcast. Hello. <laughs> for <the week. laughs> Hello. For the week, uh, 3rd of September to the 7th of September. What a week it was. Uh, we had George Megalogenis in talking about his book, The Football Solution, How Richmond's Premiership Can Save Australia. And boy, did I love getting to talk about the Tigers a little bit more. And we also uh, played a bit of a game. It's called The Disdain Game, and it is exactly what it sounds like. Mm. You did a terrific job. Thanks. No, you failed the disdain game <laughs> right there. Uh, also, we had John Saffron came in to chat about his show Jew Detective. Uh, sarcasm is not a crime. It was playing at Yarraville last. And also, <clears throat> sorry, Zoe Coombs-Ma and um, Mishka Gore uh, about their show Ik Nibba Dibba. Yes, and for Wednesday this week, Geraldine had to prepare a comedy festival show. Mm-hmm. Quite a different one. Yes. And then we had... A segment where we talked about times when you've accidentally scared someone and hilarity has ensued. Oh. Right. <laughs> what was that? Scaring you. You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3 Triple R. Our next guest, John Safran, makes his debut at the Yarraville Club on Saturday, September the 15th, bringing his sold out comedy festival show to the Wild West. Jew detective, sarcasm is not a crime. (laughs) His most recent book, Depends What You Mean by Extremist, Going Rogue with Australian Deplorables, was shortlisted for Non-Fiction Book of the Year at the Australian Book Industry Awards. He was here a couple of weeks ago for Radiothon, one-time Triple R breakfaster. Come good. Welcome back, John. Are you as sarcastic as ever? Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) But it's not my fault. I never knew... I was sarcastic until I left my ghetto because I just, it, like in Balaclava and at the Jewish school, I went to everyone was like sarcastic like all the time and I, I might have been a little more sarcastic than most people but then, it, when, then when I left high school and went to university, then that's when people started telling me like, man, you're really sarcastic. <laughs> <laughs> it, was too, it was too late by then and also my, my dad particularly was an enabler because he was an accountant and he'd get these, like, accounting magazines where, um. where the front cover was always trying to make accounting look kind of fun. You know, like, be like an accountant, like, mountain bike riding or snowboarding. <laughs> it was like the CPA accounting magazine, extreme and all. And anyway, so I used to always take the mickey out of him for that. And he always just, he never told me you're not meant to do that so I thought it was the normal thing to do and again so it's like it's my father's fault and my school's fault that I'm so sarcastic but you've since built an entire career off it so I guess so I try to yeah and and sometimes it's too late now because I always sound sarcastic even when I'm not trying to be sarcastic and it's really hard sometimes like at the moment I'm writing this pitch document and it's all fine the idea but then you have to write this thing uh, why do you think your story is best for audio form? And, blah? and I, I just, as soon as I try to do that sincere, <laughs> uh, audio is theatre of the mind or something like that, I just sound like I'm taking the piss. And so, you do. Yeah. <laughs> I listen to your audible uh, reading of Depends What You Mean by Extremist and I was struck by what I thought was a more earnest John Safran. I mean, yeah, sure, there's a bit of sort of sarcasm and and irony, a lot of it in in the book, but I got a sense you were more grounded, more earnest in that bit of work. Oh, yeah, no, because they can work at the same time. You know, you can 
be funny but be serious at the same time. So yeah, like I, def- I definitely meant it, and the, yeah, like, like I was fascinated with the crazy world I fell into, which was looking into these radical and sometimes extreme characters, mainly around the Melbourne kind of political scene. And I fortunately, a bit of ahead of the curve, I was hanging out with these far right people, like way before Trump said he was going to be go up to for the presidential election and before Pauline Hanson said she was going to make her return. I was just... I was happy to write about these, like, far-right people who just, like, hanging out in pubs. Like, that was good enough for me. And then the culture kind of started catching up with them and they started being more and more kind of part of the zeitgeist. And so so people like Blair Cottrell, who's slightly become a household name because <laughs> he was, like, on Sky News, or Avi Yemeni, he's at... Jewish dude who's always hanging out with the far right and and yeah I I I got there first I was like I was like the triple R of <laughs> of hanging out with these these people that have like somehow become household names it was it was good I'm a, I'm a good talent spotter for for <laughs> for, for fascists <laughs> if you want to. I read, so I read an interview with you where you said that uh, with the perspective of time, you kind of wish you'd given a bit more of space to n- normal people as well as the people on the far right. Do you still feel like that? Yeah, almost creatively I, I do in that you, you watch uh, TV shows and you do need that grounding of someone who is somewhat normal to really enhance how strange the strange people are. Yeah. And sometimes when you take out the normal people... It just goes haywire, which is kind of it's <laughs> kind of cool. But there's like definitely no harm in sort of having some some like grounding in a normality or whatever. In the norms, yes. So like yeah, like in the book, I've got this one bit where yeah, there's just a couple of bits where like someone who's outside the insane bubbles I'm in, like comments like the uh, like a waiter at a cafe, whilst I'm sitting opposite uh, uh, the Parliament House waiting for the latest fascist rally and. You know, and she'll just give her totally normal person who hasn't been locked in the bubble like me for a year of, you know, oh, yeah, they're just coming here and who knows what, they're protesting again, they've thought of something else to kind of get together and have a have, have a complain about and yeah. whilst I'm in this t- total, t- like, state of hysteria. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you not let that affect you? Because you've spent a lot of time around a lot of fairly full-on people. Have you ever been in a moment and thought, this is, I've gone... I've gone too far and this is affecting me. I'm either not necessarily buying it, not believing, but just kind of being a bit, I don't know. The, the, a good – a reason why you don't become radicalised is because people become more annoying. The more Like, yeah. like when, when you first meet the ISIS dude on the first occasion or the Nazi dude on the first occasion, there's all the novelty. It's like, oh, my God, he's so cool. <laughs> it's so f- yeah. colourful and, and whatever. And, and as a writer, it's, like, okay. fascinating. And then the yeah. more you hang out with them, like, they don't... Their arguments don't become more convincing. Like, it's more like suddenly you're... It's like, oh, well, yeah, I'm totally bored that you're, you've got swastikas on you by the six, yeah. six meeting, so... Is what, there something... Is it, like, a... Um, <clears throat> A personality trait that kind of goes through all these extremists? Are they like, are they all charismatic or what draws people into them, do you think? Uh, they're especially now, like, what one of the things that's different to 10 years ago and maybe even five years ago is a lot of them, one layer to them is they're following the same logic as like Instagram models or like everyone wanting to be a brand and everyone wanting a shortcut 
to fame. And so there's definitely that element to it where, uh, like in the case of someone, there's a guy called Sherman Burgess who's this far-right dude. Is that Baby John's son? No. (laughs) (laughs) He wishes. And if you look at his history, he started off and he was doing like these comedy sketches. He was like trying to be a comedian. He was trying to be this or that, dabbling. And then this is a way that he sort of got attention. And so there's a lot about attention and there's also a lot about power, which is in their own limited way where, 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 yeah, they're, they're sort of like trying to build power in a way that's somehow kind of independent of their politics. Like they just like, you know, building their own little empire. And it is a shortcut to being a king. It's like if you're like a young man, like in your early 20s and you just want to be a king, but you haven't done the right thing so far, like you haven't done a uni degree that's going to make you or whatever, or you haven't got a good job or whatever, this is, you know, a shortcut to try to become, you know, influential and someone of importance in a very small pond. Mm. Who's the, uh, I say character, but who's the person that's sort of stuck with you the most, the personality that stuck with you the most that you met through, depends what you mean by extremist and who might grace the stage uh, you know, metaphorically speaking, for Jew Detective. Oh, yeah, yeah, because the live show is sort of me talking about writing the book, but it's also about going on the book tour afterwards where I was really uh, thrown by how I was just chucked into all these environments with people who were very political and had definite points to make and I was, like, flustered and because my book was more coming from a, you know, I'm a writer and I go out there and I think this is ironic or funny and, you know, there's not, it's not like every chapter ends with me trying to make these didactic points or anything like that. And so I, I became, started getting kind of agitated that, like, writers' festivals had been taken over by ideologues where, and I'm saying ideologues from the left or the right, I just mean ideologues where somehow the reality of writing or is somehow to make points and where I just think so many storytellers, that's just not how they, like, that's like that's not the point of storytelling. You know, it's to point to things, it's to hint at things. If it was to make points, then government press releases from the EPA, <laughs> from the EPA or wherever, government press releases would be more creative than Dolly Parton songs because <laughs> government press releases make points. Whilst Dolly Parton just talks about 9 to 5 or Jolene, like, what a loser. And anyway, I, I basically at the release of the Writers' Festival, I was feeling like Dolly Parton where I was sitting on these panels where the starting point was, like, I'm on the back foot because I'm not making points or something. And I was really irritated because I thought I was right and they were wrong, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, wasn't, yeah. I wasn't there feeling inadequate because... I'm not making all these points, but, yeah. So, anyway, that, that, that infuses the show also because it's about artists versus ideologues and the sort of the tensions there. So is there a point to the show? <laughs> yeah, there's a point to taking down ideologues. Like, I talk about how ideologues, I noticed, on the left, right or whatever, they really love people in theory but just not in practice. And so they've got this really romanticised version of whatever groups they're in but actually, like, on a day-to-day, they just can't stand anyone and everyone's failing to live up to their idealised version of what a person from that group should be. And, yeah, so the show's about that too. That's the point. Oh, well done. <laughs> it's a good point. And some laughs. Oh, yeah, lots of laugh-a-roos. <laughs> and... Are you nervous doing comedy in front of people? I mean, like, oh, everything I've... you've done's always had, like, a vein of 
funny through yeah. it, but it's different standing on stage and having oh, to the, go. This was scary because I did it first for the Melbourne Comedy Festival and I just thought there's no way, like, I can get away with it not being funny. Yeah. Like, like, I did a live show for my last book, Murder in Mississippi, but I think I that debuted at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas or something. So it wasn't like comedy was written on it. So mm. I felt a lot of pressure for this to make sure it's funny. So hopefully it's funny. People were laughing at the goddamn Melbourne Comedy Festival. Oh, that's all right. Yeah, so that was okay. You're so, funny. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> One more serious question, yes. John. Are we becoming more tribal in society, this sort of nationalism, this patriotism? Are you optimistic about multiculturalism? Oh, and not... Uh, again, I'm in, I'm in the bubble, so because I just hang around with the... the the most extreme versions of all these people. But, no, it does seem like we are fragmenting into our little groups and there's a lot of pressure to, like, choose a side and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's, that's becoming more and more so, I reckon, not, not less and less. So, yeah, probably there will be a race war by November. Oh, it's hilarious. No, that's great. <laughs> it's the punchline right there. Yeah. <laughs> So the show's at the Yarraville Club? Yes, correct. Where can people get their tickets? They go to yarravillelaughs.com. And what's the show? when's the show? Saturday, oh, the 17th of September. Yeah, only two oh, weeks away. Nice. Get in. Yes. Dinner and show. Well, you can just go to the show too. Yeah. Well, then you've got to feed yourself. Yeah, yeah. I think you can sneak in stuff in your pocket. <laughs> like a meat pie and musk sticks or whatever. But if you do go for the dinner and a show, you're not allowed to steal the silverware. You're not allowed to, like, go, oh, Saffron's such an anarchist and a rebel. <laughs> Let's steal shit. It doesn't go like that. John Saffron, thank you very much. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. Ik Nibba Dibla Dibba is the terrific name of a performance on at the Malthouse starting tomorrow and running till the 23rd of September. It's written, directed and performed by Post. And we're now joined by two-thirds of Post, Zoe Kumsma and Mish Grigger. Welcome to Breakfasters. It's good to be here. Hello. Sorry about the name. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a personal joke that we've played on everyone. <laughs> this is based on... As I understand, 10 years of recorded conversations between the two of you and a third post member, Natalie Rose. How did you come by those recordings and what made you to decide them to, to decide to turn them into a performance? We were being surveilled heavily and we found out just a couple of years ago. It was like a, a real sliver type ACO. of situation. Anyone can do it. Apparently they've got files on us all. And after a while they, they released them and then we were like, this will make a good theatre show. Um, I'm glad we got that sorted out. That's it. No. That's not true. No, we were actually, because we make theatre together um, outside of this project. Project. And so we've been making theatre for the whole time and we usually devise shows by sort of setting up a, a tape recorder or in the olden days. Um, <laughs> we were making work in the early 70s, I don't know. <laughs> no, by like filming ourselves to watch back the, the process or to see if any good stuff comes up. And so we just kept all the tapes and all the recordings. And so we had this sort of accidental archive of us and a lot of us procrastinating from work as well. So we just decided to make a show out of it. And did you know what was on them before you started making this show or what made you go back to look at these old recordings that you had? We knew what's like some of it that was on there because it had ended up in shows, uh, the good stuff, uh, but we were, we, you tend not to remember the procrastinating conversations and the stuff that you don't use. So 
we had a sort of an idea, but we kind of thought that we'd be saying more interesting, profound things, but it turns out we just talk a lot about going to the toilet. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, a real constant. But it's sort of like, uh, it's... It was kind of surprising when we did go back and look at it. Like some things we were like, oh, yeah, I sort of remember having that conversation. Or we talk about what's in the news. Like we talk a bit about Fritzel and we talk oh, about Osama yeah. bin Laden. So it's all these things you're like, oh, yeah, remember Fritzel? God, he was big for a while, wasn't he? <laughs> and then- <laughs> I think it's good that we don't remember. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, well, no, no, no. Did you hear anything that you said or did that gave you some insight into you that you weren't happy with? You know what I think when I listen oh, back to old things ago? You used to laugh really loudly, Sarah. You were oh, a bit annoying. It's know. pretty much constant trauma right. watching yourself. Yeah. I mean, especially because we were like 18, 19 when we started and then it went for about 12 years. Yeah, so it's a little bit longer than 10 years now. But yeah. So watching you... yourself at 19, everyone's an idiot at 19, right? <laughs> yeah. But... <laughs> Did you solve all the problems of the universe? Oh, yeah. There's one conversation that we have where we're like, the Matrix and Kraftwerk invented nihilism <laughs> and like, I Heart Huckabees really taught me a lot about myself. Yeah. No, it's true. That movie changed everything. Uh, but do you... Was there any repetitiveness? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we tend to have about, we've got about seven conversations that we just repeat every couple of years. And I don't know so. if all friendship groups do this. You guys might do this on radio. Mm. But what we found was there'd be a conversation where we'd ha- someone would tell a story, like an anecdote from their childhood, which was relevant. Yes. And then someone would respond with another anecdote and the third person would then say a comment, right? And that exact scenario with the exact same details would happen year after year after year. As though it was for the first time. So that yeah. was oh, horrifying. No. And one we were actually—that is our job. Yeah, yeah. Just and you go, have we had this conversation before? Like, oh my we, god, that is our job. Yeah, yeah. we we um we actually when we were listening to it, we were on a residency and we were sort of transcribing and listening to all the tapes. So we were split off doing different parts because there were like hundreds of hours of tape. And I was actually listening to one of these exchanges. I was like, God, Nat's having this conversation about a bloody feature wall again. Mm. And in the actual room, Nat was telling Mish about her feature wall. <gasps> so the actual, no. it was playing out in real time and on my head, in my head. And I was just like... What is going on? So you guys have to stop talking. Nat, are you aware that you have had this conversation before? And she's like, what? I don't know. I don't think I've told much about it. I want to know about your feature wall Yeah, no, I want to We don't need to talk about that anymore. Feature wall, it just comes up. It's not actually in the show, but it's in a lot of... um... She had a feature wall at two separate houses growing up. She designed them. Uh, it was a it was blue site. on the bottom yeah. and it was like yellow on the top. The first one was just blue and yellow, wasn't yes. it? Yeah, but then she second thought that's too had, harsh. Yeah. The second one she used like white sponging. Sponging, softened, softened the, the look. <laughs> and I don't know if it's just Natalie Rose or it was a particular time of, you know, culturally where we were in the 90s in an Australian suburban context. Oh, well, but definitely. Mm. Well, no, everyone at least aspired to a feature wall. Yeah, no, a lime green one. But oh. for Nat, it's, n- it's not just about interior decoration. It's actually like a sort of metaphor that can be brought into any conversation <laughs> and it's relevant as a sort of, you know, a, a, fix, a fixed point that you can bounce off of. It's yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. So how does this become a show? Or did the, did the show <laughs> yeah. come first and then you went back to the tapes or did you start listening to the tapes and then think, oh, maybe there's a show in this? No, we decided to make a show without knowing what was in the tapes. And as Zoe said, I think sh- we thought it would be more serious and that you would really see us go through that kind of 
20s, you know, our 20s and how we shifted and changed and big life things. You do. There are big life things. Like one of the recordings is Nat giving birth and we were there. Um, so We were in the room. In the room. I mean, you don't listen, you don't hear the recordings. We're, we're performing it as a script. But there are big life events that happen. But. but there's also a lot of like the banalities of conversation between friends. And so we just sort of sat down and transcribed it all and then basically just picked out we sort of squished it into an hour with like all the highlights and some of the lowlights of that 12 years of conversation and then you reenact that on stage is that yeah Yeah. so it's become a script and then uh we perform it so i mean there are through lines and there it is structured like it's not just Mm. like boring hour of listening to people just (laughs) rabbiting on about a feature wall like it is actually we know what we're doing it is a show it's fun and funny and all that sort of stuff but it really is just an accumulation of minutiae and like for example at the start we are 18 and 19 and we're talking about zoe making out with this really old chick this woman who's like so old she's like 29 (laughs) and i think some people laugh at that because they can see our faces Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess what jumps out at me, and this is why I could never do what you guys do, is it confronting putting such intimate details of your friendship yes. on stage and playing mm-hmm. them out before people? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. we say, you, uh, this may come as a surprise, but you say things at uh, 18, 19 that you wouldn't say now. Um, And, yeah, there are certain things in there. I mean, we've also, like, the politics of it we've had to juggle a little bit because, like, the language that we use isn't sort of particularly politically correct now but was sort of more so then. So you sort of see those changes in culture as well as... The, just the changes in us. So, and that's one of the things that is quite confronting, actually, that we yeah. sort of have really had to balance what we use and what we don't because it's not really us anymore, but it, they were things that we said. There's nothing terrible in there. We're not like... <laughs> we used to be racist. Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, no. Do you see any shifts in your friendships at all? Can you, If there's ever been riffs or anything, can you kind of pick that up, listening back to stuff? There's a few little moments of tension, yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah. So there's, and I think with three people you sort of, you kind of bounce between playing different sort of roles totally. at different points. Who's, there's always two people picking on one, but then that, that shifts to making fun of the other one. We're quite mean to each other. <laughs> yeah. Same. <laughs> <laughs> and so... Okay, so you've been doing posts for a long time. How do you balance that between you, know, you obviously have your own successful careers? Do you just do your own stuff and then do you sort of have some sort of pact that you're going to come back together and do post stuff or how does it work? Um, we just... Yeah, Mish, how does it work? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I guess as a company, when we when we started making shows and getting success a little bit in Sydney, people started saying to us, oh, you're going to become a full-time company? Like, are you going to sort of get professional? And we always said that we didn't want to do that. We just kind of come together when we have an idea and work out timelines between our availabilities of other things that we're doing. Because I think the reason that we've survived so long as an artistic collaboration is the fact that we don't have to hang out all the time and we do get to have a break and fulfil other parts of our, you know, I don't know, artistic brains with other projects. How did you... How did it start in the first place? Were you all just mates to begin with or...? Uh, we were put together by ASIO. It was like a kind of an experiment. No, <laughs> oh, okay. um, no yeah, we, right. were, um, we, met, we met doing a theatre course when um, in Sydney at a place called Pact Theatre, which stands for something like Performers, Artists... It, but I always think it stands for people aren't coming tonight because that's what someone told me. Because <laughs> it was 
true. Uh, and but we we met doing that, and um, and we just sort of we actually got put in a room, so they just sort of split up the group. Asia, yeah. And uh, they split up the group. There was like eighteen people in the class, and they were like, "You guys, you three, go into a room and devise a scene." And we did. And we went in there, and then we um, we did this. We're working with this script and this kind of devised thing, and we were working in a kitchen. And we decided it would be really funny if we put Mish in the dishwasher because she's very tall. <laughs> Listeners at home, is, Mish is quite tall, and um, we we did manage to fit her in the dishwasher. And then she came out, and we were like, "That was amazing. Let's work together forever." <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've got to ask to the title "Ik Niba Diba." Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? It's, I mean, it doesn't mean anything. We keep getting embarrassed when people Google it and they're like, oh, Google, it's not showing up on Google. And we're like, yeah, that's because we made made it it up. Um, But it's basically, it's sort of like a nonsense word that's shorthand for a joke that we used to have between us. And it's one of those jokes that you have with friends where you're like, you can't really remember what the joke's about and it's not actually funny anymore, but people just keep saying, ik nibba dibba, ik nibba dibba in any situation, a bit like Nat's feature wall. (laughs) <laughs> and it's, yeah, it's it's also. I mean, but it's it does. I mean, technically, it means is never done, as in a woman's work is never done. A woman's work, ich nipper dibba. And it's, it's these guys making, making fun, fun of, of me Zoe. saying that in German, yeah, because I did German in high school. And she's and quite like, showoffy about like that. She knows a few words in German, <laughs> and so she always like says them with a lot of like hard, hard commitment to the pronunciation. And Nat and I often just sort of. Speaking nonsense words to I don't make do fun that of often. it. I did it like once about seven years ago. Are you sure? Because it <laughs> seems like that feature wall only came up once, but came up again and yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. All right, that's a good point. Thank and you. before that's we get to this, is part of a series that Malthouse is doing called Unwrapped. Can you tell us about that? Uh, that was a part of the season that the Sydney Opera House was doing called Unwrapped. Oh, uh, yes. my bad. But. Yes. But that it was is. great. It was a great season. Um, it was like a program of uh, new Australian work. Uh, it's just part of the regular Malthouse season. Ah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Good last question. Yeah. <laughs> we were going so well. <laughs> That's the other reason we called the show Ik Nibba It's just a joy to hear other people have to say it. Uh, I think I should just... Get out of this space. <laughs> okay, it's on from tomorrow till the 23rd of September. Written, directed and performed by Post. We've been talking two-thirds of Post, Zoe Coombsmar and Mish Grigger. Thanks so much. Thanks. This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. You're listening to Breakfasters. Just heard all about us then. I know. It? Wasn't that nice? Yeah. Uh, looking forward to that dinner. <laughs> so am I. Sure. Uh, Anyway, it's Wednesday morning, which means it's time for the Wednesday. Wednesday. The most most relief I feel each week is when this segment comes up and it hasn't been my Wednesday. It's an extraordinary amount of relief. Can relate. Yeah. Totally understand. When it's it's a double when it's not yours and you don't have to come up with one. And also you didn't come up with one, yes. Yeah. And it's double relief. Yep. Yeah. You're just the spectator. Yes. You just enjoy the shenanigans. So, Sarah Smith, sit back and relax. <laughs> I am. <laughs> so, uh, yesterday, um, thankfully I remembered at a reasonable time. Because I completely forgot. Yeah, I think we yeah, so had all I. forgotten. I uh, don't know why we do it. It comes around every week. <laughs> yeah. No. It's like always a surprise. Yeah, yes, it's very true. And we have the same conversation every week. But here we are again. Uh, but I sent a text out um, just saying, I need a dare to both of you. Yes. Uh, and that was 
you know, 11 maybe. At a well, lunch, yeah, about, lunch, 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 about yeah. midday. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it must have been after midday because I was with Annalisa in Richmond. So between <laughs> 12 and 1. Oh, lovely. <laughs> Exposing her to, <laughs> to, yeah. to, to the stresses of your life. I know. Uh, and uh, honestly, I didn't think I'd get a response so quickly, but Jeff, you were onto it. Oh, well, see, because of your weird phone thing, I never know whether that's just to me. I, I Here's the thing. She's always texting both of us. Yeah, right. Always. Well, I thought... Oh, was, except for when well, I'm I don't know, sending you, know, you those texts about Sarah. Then yeah, that's, just, that's uh, true. <laughs> that is true. So, but also I don't think I've come up with one for a while. So, yeah, why, why not, I thought. You, you're happy to get on board. What did you come up with? So, hang on, what did I come up with? I, can't I said, you have to write a title and a synopsis for a comedy festival show oh. as if you're a male bro comedian. Oh, I love it. <laughs> Bonus points if you can convince someone you're actually going to put it on. Oh. Okay. So, uh, did a bit of research. <laughs> Got comedy on. bros. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I kind of see the comedy bros as the um, – there's a certain type of comic – Comedians that I, they're the YouTube kind of stars. Ah, oh, sure. Yes. And I go, oh, yeah. Okay. The, the, the names are all in with E's. Yeah. Like, yep. Wazzy and yep. Fuzzy and. They're the kind of, yeah, they're, they, um, Brozzy. they do lots of sketches and stuff online and it's usually, you know, stuff that gets popular on, on Reddit perhaps and things that are like, oh, my best, I've lost my best mate because he's got a, got a girlfriend and now I never see her. You know, R.I.P. Bobby. Was he? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so I looked up um, previous. Oh, you did some research. Yeah, yeah. I just ha- I had a bit of a gauge of what their synopsis of shows would be and, you know, what they'd write. Anyway, this is what I came up with. Great. <clears throat> Geraldine Hickey, sit down and shut up. <laughs> You like that? It's good. <laughs> Starting well. Like I came up with that top of my head. I went, oh, that's that's perfect. It is. Sit down and shut up. Do you reckon the words political correctness comes in? <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I thought you were going to call it Jeronicki political correctness gone mad. I've actually avoided it. <clears throat> Here we go. She eats pies with her hands. If you want her to, she'll drink a beer from your shoe. If you're not an uptight moron, she'll make you laugh. All you need to do is sit down and shut up. Oh, my God. Geraldine will have you in fits of laughter with nothing off limits, including terrorists, roots and drugs. Roots. She'll also show you how to make a perfect souffle just to show you she has a softer side and you can impress your date. That's it. Oh, that is very good. I was right. I feel like you should send that in for your... I when feel like I'd like those? to keep my career. Yeah. But, like, it could just be funny. Yeah. But I it think I, I reckon the content of it changes to if it's Geraldine Hickey attached to it, it yeah. sounds different. If it was Wazzy attached to it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Geraldine Hickey, it sounds you're like you're taking the Wazzy, sit down and shut up. <laughs> <laughs> he eats pies with his hands. If you want, he'll drink a beer from your shoe. It's a shoey. <laughs> yeah. If you're not an uptight moron, he'll make you laugh. All you need to do is sit down and shut up. <laughs> no girlfriends allowed. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're allowed to. You're allowed to bring a date because you know this is why I put the, oh, souffle. the souffle. Yeah, he'll show you how to make a perfect souffle, just to show he has a softer side 
and you can impress your date and then later get a root. <laughs> Good. So the extra challenge. Get a root. The extra uh, challenge of the, that was actually quite difficult. And can I say the uh, nothing is off limits, including terrorist roots and drugs, I got from uh, one of those... Uh, YouTube stars no. doing yeah, that's a real one. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd start. He, they had written something like there was terrorists, and I think it was like um, wasn't roots and oh, drugs was in there, and something else. It was a bit offensive, <laughs> and it was like. <laughs> You know, these are just some of the topics and if you're, you know, not over 85 and, you know, then you, there'll be something in there for you. But if you are over 85, maybe come in and a, a church-going 85-year-old, then maybe turn your hearing aid off. And, oh. Yeah. It was like, oh, good mm, on you. Yeah. You know what else you'd have to do with that synopsis, though? You'd need to... um. You'd need to get the perfect photo as well. Do you know well, what I'm imagining? This, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, go. Oh, no, yeah, tell me what, what you were What was his imagine? name? Christensen with the whip over his shoulder in the blue oh. singlet? <laughs> yes. That is exactly what I'm imagining. Uh, I was imagining years ago there was someone that had the, the comedy. It was just this guy's in a pair of shorts and a, it was just, you know, typical bloke comedy, lovely guy, uh, but was just doing the biggest man spread oh. with the, the globe. It was man-spreading oh. the world. Oh. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that's so symbolic, image. isn't yeah. it? I could see that would work. Yeah. Was his world. Yeah, yeah. was his world. <laughs> anyway, so the next... None of you are safe. <laughs> <laughs> the next part of the challenge was to convince someone that I was actually going to do this. And oh. I thought about, you know, posting online. That's the easiest place to go, you know, sure. to get online There's always and go. someone gullible online, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. but... But that's detrimental to my career, I thought. True. Possibly, yes. Yeah. Thought, oh, or maybe your career would take off even more. Yeah. <laughs> it you could. Reinvent yourself. Yeah. The other thing that I was trying to was channeling, channeling was um, Zoe Coombs-Ma, Dave. Dave. Oh, yeah. I was thinking yeah. that because we'd just spoken to her. Yeah. So I was trying to avoid, I'm like, you know, am I right, fellas? Hey? Uh, anyway, so I went, I can't get on like, like I didn't want to get on because like, it just seemed like I was trying to do another People would just think I was trying yeah, to do another day it, yeah. or they would think that I'd completely lost the plot or someone would just go, is this a Wednesday? That's what, what, <laughs> every time I th- always, that's what I think is going to happen. Is this a Wednesday? People, no, I didn't know people would, no one beyond really Andrew knows that I well, yeah, actually, well, select I was few thinking, who listen to the magic hour. <laughs> it's true. It was just Kath that I was thinking about. So, <laughs> I, But I thought, do you know what? I'll do it. I was sitting next to her on the couch as I was writing this last night. And I turned to her and I said, hey, listen, what do you think about this? Because I've got a, um, you know, it's nearly time for registrations for, for Comedy Festival. Um, so what do, what do you think about this? <laughs> Poor <Kat. laughs> She read it and laughed. Like she thought it was very funny. And I'm like trying, I'm laughing as well because <laughs> I'm thinking she knows what's going on. But she went, yeah, it's f- funny, but not in a you funny way, like it is in a you're Trying to be someone else, funny oh. way, and but she didn't say it's just just for Wednesday. She didn't oh, say no. In other no, words, she didn't in. say no. So I'll you put it in there then. Yeah, I'll take that as a TBC. As a you could do something with this. Don't know what. I don't think I will. Okay. <laughs> You're listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from Three Triple R.
You're listening to Breakfasters with Sarah, Jeff and Geraldine. Do you know? Do you have people in your life, or are you one of those people that are very easily scared by some things? I am. I'd say I'm quite. I'm quite. Um, what did I say? There's like a word for it. I don't oh, know. I don't uh, know. No, maybe highly strong. Oh, yeah. We're talking yeah. about like just being scared, a- as in like spooked when you know someone, someone jumps out from yes. behind you. I get yes. very scared very easily. All easily startled. Yes, easily like when startled. I was living um, with Celia, I because she would wear headphones a lot while she was working, oh. so it was I was constantly sneaking up on her. <laughs> But that's not good for like no, but <laughs> nice unintentionally. Answer, do you know what oh, I mean? It was always okay. unintentional. It was like, and it's always hard when they've got their back to you, and you know that they can't see or hear you, and it's how do you? It was always a constant struggle of how do I let her know that Without I'm here? Freaking, I used to think that with my mum when she was vacuuming when I was a kid. Oh yeah, I wanted to get her attention. I always knew that if I grabbed her, she'd. Freak out. Yeah, totally. But it's like you'd have to try and edge your way around in front of them somehow without... But then then you just pop up out of nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) So what would you do? Oh, I'd just 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 go... Tap her on one shoulder and jump around the other (laughs) shoulder. (laughs) I mean, it was just constantly that it it was just my life that Celia would turn around and go... Sorry, I didn't see them uh, like every day. But I was uh, having um, lunch uh, with some friends on the weekend and one of my mates is next level of being scared yeah. and her partner, you know, preys on that, like knows that he can scare her so we'll do it. Like, you know, there's, there was one night where he hid in a wheelbarrow. Oh, and God, just that's so much commitment. Off. Oh, yeah, yeah. Lots of commitment. But for him, it's like it's worth it. <laughs> like it's just, it's next level. She, it's like full-on screams and oh, like and she's I'm not sh- getting more used to it the no. more that he does it. And no. Does she find this as amusing as he does? Probably not, but she's still <laughs> she's still okay with it. Do you know, like it's, is, she, is she really? No, probably. <laughs> I have friends who are so no. com- were really similar. I were committed to this. So a friend of mine who are a couple, they live in London and at, a mutual friend of ours lived with them for a while, and she and the and the husband used to have this ongoing trick on each other because they both came home early. Mm. Where if one of them got home earlier than the other, she, they, they would hide somewhere in their house. Yeah, love it. And but they would they were so committed. They would often wait to the person was home for like forty five minutes. So they've made themselves at home. They might have made some <laughs> dinner and. Then they'd make themselves known, oh, and every so single time good. it'd freak the other one out. <laughs> but like that hiding cupboards, for, I just love the commitment to it. Just going, like, I'm just going to yes. sit in this cupboard for so long until the ultimate <laughs> until moment. You, until they're so relaxed. Between an amusing prank and pathological madness. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> oh. uh, when we were um, in Indonesia um, last year, we a few things went wrong with that. Trip. Mm. Steph was not a big fan of the the Indonesian weather, but oh, I'm glad we, you finished that with weather. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> people. <laughs> so we went off one day. We went off for this long walk to this cave complex that was supposed to be this big attraction. So we went off there. It took us ages to get there. We were really hot and mm. uncomfortable by the time we got there. And then at the entrance, there's a guy there um, offering to be your guide, right? And we thought, oh well, we don't need that. 
you know, it's just going to be this little cave that you just go in and you look at it. Yeah. And then you walk up there and then there's a, a pile of helmets that you have to take. You have to put these helmets yes. on. And then we started going into this cave and it was just this narrow crack that went into complete Jesus. blackness. Darkness. And that was the point that Steph told me that actually she hates caves. <laughs> Why would you do I this? Know. I think oh my two god! Two hours to get here. You hate caves. <laughs> <laughs> then we pushed on a little bit further, oh. and it was completely black. And it was oh, like you just suddenly howling, and all of a sudden, what did all you these do? bats <gasps> flew out of nowhere over our faces. Wow! And then she totally freaked out, and then oh. we had to leave the cave, which is fine because I was in front of her, and um. I had seen, but she had not seen, that the walls were also covered with enormous spiders. <laughs> Are you serious? Were they really? Oh. Were you meant to be in this cave? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> what, did, did you, what did you do with the, the spiders? spiders? Did you tell yeah. her about that? Well, no, she, she ran out after the bats came out. And so I thought, well, I'm not going off to this cave by myself. So that was the end of our cave. Oh, you didn't, she didn't see the spiders? And she didn't see the spiders. Oh, no, you didn't she, make her close her eyes and touch the <laughs> wall? <her> yeah. <laughs> Don't, don't you love walking through caves and just trickling your hand along the wall yeah. as you walk? <laughs> oh, that's the worst. Do you know what's scary, though? It's back to my mate. She, most of the time her reactions are pretty, you know, it's fun and entertaining. But sometimes, she told me this one time where it just went disaster mode, right? So she was living with her sister and uh, they were, you know, out on a farm, right? So out middle of nowhere and uh, quite often her sister would never be home because she had a boyfriend so she'd go and stay at his place and whatnot and then one night she was in the middle of the night she got up to go to the bathroom and then uh, and she was there with her boyfriend at the time went to the bathroom you know went to the toilet and then was washing her hands and then looked up in the mirror and oh. then behind her was this figure <laughs> with this she had hair everywhere like and because it was her sister, right? And it, because she'd been out all night and she'd gone to bed with her makeup on. So, oh, uh, Pandora. Yeah, Pandora. And just <laughs> this matted hair everywhere. Oh, no. And so, sister's like, you know, half asleep as well, just standing there in the background. Like <laughs> Freddy Krueger. Yes. And so, my mate just looked at and saw this figure and she said she lost it. Just screamed and screamed. Just the point. And also, she's like, she wasn't wearing any clothes. She goes, I was sleep oh naked. And then, so it was just screaming, wet herself. Oh, my God. Because she was so manic about it because she just went, I just thought I was going to die. I thought, oh, well, that that's is, it. Yeah, that is terrible. And just... And then so because of all the screaming that's happening, her boyfriend comes out and he comes running down the hallway because he thinks that, you know, uh, you know, oh, no. people are dying. But then he stacks it because he slips on her wee. Oh, my God. <laughs> just goes whack. And then it's just... So, like, I get why you'd want to get on board. Just hide behind a corner in a wheelbarrow and go, rah! This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. 
tuned to Breakfast is here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah. The Football Solution, How Richmond's Premiership Can Save Australia, is a new book out through Penguin. Its author, George Megalogenis, is a long-time friend of Triple R. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to the studio. Good morning, team, and it's been too long, I think. It has been. It's very nice that you can make it in. Um, you say in this book, football is the closest thing we have to a common story about Indigenous, migrant and local-born Australians. That's really the main theme of the book. What do you mean? Uh, when you look at the foundation story of the game, there's literally no other foundation story Australia has that connects all three. Um, I know there's a bit of denial at the AFL about the role that Mangrook played in the establishment of the original rules of the game and the influence on Tom Wills, who is sort of the founding father of Australian rules football. But even if you sort of put that to one side, and I don't want to, I think it's, uh, the, it is it is an open and shut case that he was influenced. It's impossible in growing up in the 1840s in the Western Districts of Victoria as the only white child in that area that he didn't play football. And the game, there are many accounts that said that the game was played in that area and, in fact, they even had a name for it, which is Mangrook. So uh, Martin Flanagan always makes the point the Italians didn't invent the word pasta and then not make it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so but, the, but, but the second and the third part, and this is the more intriguing part, so Wills is, a, is the grandson of a convict, so he's an Aussie. Uh, uh, he's the, and, he's, and his father's a squatter. But the people who took up the game and the people who watched it, more importantly, in the 1860s, 1870s and 1880s were predominantly migrants, free migrants, middle-class migrants from all parts of the world. So in that sort of 20 to 30-year period where Melbourne's taken off, uh, Victoria's taken off with the gold rush and the game's sort of been invented at the same time, uh, there are literally three influences in the game. There's no other thing in Australian life that has the three influences so uh, intimately entwined almost at foundation. Uh, part of your narrative is to do with why football succeeded in Victoria and not in other states. Why, for instance, did New South Wales never really get on board with the local game? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things that uh, I didn't know any of this. So, uh, I mean, the book the book was sort of turned around pretty quickly after the premiership. You know, there was a pitch that night on Twitter and the, <laughs> and the publisher said, sure, go for it. And then the morning after we, uh, well, on the Monday, we decided, well, how are you going to get to 75,000 words just on a love letter to your footy team? <laughs> <But> <laughs> I could have got there, but there was much more... I think there was much more to the story, uh, not just the story of the club and the suburb, but also the story of the game. And the game is the most watched sport in Australia and it's sort of the most watched television event as the grand final each year. Uh, State of Origin comes close, but that question, that question of why the North-South divide in, in Australia... And also considering that footy was 50 years old, uh, the time that Sydney sort of decided, actively chose rugby league, which was then a very recent game from the north of England, over the game that played um, uh, south of the Murray River. And I think there's two factors. One, bit of a chip on the shoulder, the Melbourne-Sydney rivalry, and it takes on a different face at the turn of the 20th century, uh, into the 20th century when we become a federation. Melbourne's fallen off the perch and Sydney is the largest city again. But the other part of it is most of the Melburnians that left during the depression of the 1890s went west and took the game with them to Western Australia. Not enough went uh, to Sydney. And I think if enough had gone to Sydney, the game probably would have, would have taken root there in the early 1900s. And a couple of other things as well. Uh, workers were being paid to play rugby league. And they weren't being paid. They've been paid under the table, but they weren't being paid to play um, VFL as it was then. Victorian football rules. The, and the third bit, and the bit that people forget, is that the game was split at the time. 
between the VFA and the VFL and there was literally no sort of collective will to move north. But the door was wide open. Uh, rugby union wasn't uh, favoured by the working class and uh, they uh, could have got there. I mean, they've tried 100 years later to mm. get there, but they're not going to get there. I mean, it's, it's entrenched now. It's about six or seven generations of, uh, of attendance habit for one game versus another. I love reading this book and finding out about the different rivalries between clubs and where they came from because I'm a Richmond supporter who was told... Aren't we all? From, yeah, <laughs> no. Who was told... Who was, oh, sorry. Uh, who was told from a very young age, you know, you, you hate Collingwood, you hate Carlton, these yeah. are your enemies, mm. and never understood why and, yeah. and have been to those games and seen the kind of aggression between the two teams. But I was really surprised to read that Collingwood and Richmond started off as friends... Uh, yeah, my, jaw, my jaw hit the ground when I when I dug that stuff up. As yeah. I said, I, I, I wanted to have a look at the foundation of the game and sort of learn things. Because the day I turned up to my first football game in 71, you know, the game is established and all these things, as you say, uh, are inherited. You yeah. know, loathing a Carlton, loathing a Collingwood. But Richmond and Collingwood, there are no two suburbs that look more, uh, that are more alike in sort of Victoria's social history. And they were down and out industrial inner city slums and in the 1890s and the 1900s as these two footy clubs are starting to uh, starting to grow and the local communities are identifying with their clubs sort of very very viscerally uh, the two turned out to be friends friends I had no idea um, until I read about until I looked it up not only were their friends the Collingwood presidents you imagine Eddie Maguire today doing this uh, <laughs> if we aren't if we don't win the premiership this year, there's no other team that we'd like to win other than Richmond. No team that we'd like to win um, other than Richmond. Now, they even after we knocked them off in a final in uh, 1919, the president did go into the change room immediately afterwards, said, well done, lads, and if, we, if you beat us again next week and win the premiership, we'll be happy for you. <laughs> I thought, this is crazy stuff, but it, it makes sense mm. uh, when those two clubs are starting out, but it's when they were... Uh, Contending for the right to be the biggest club in the in the state, and by definition, ultimately the biggest club in the country, that they fell out. And it's old on law of rival, sporting rivalry, isn't it? The brothers are the ones that are going to go crazy. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, you talk about football as a model for multiculturalism because if its ability because of its ability to integrate people from different backgrounds, couldn't the argument be also be made though? It's a force. It's been a force for something like assimilation, with a generation of migrants told that unless they played. Australian football, they weren't real Australians, that soccer wasn't a real game, that football was the game that you had to play as an Australian. Yeah, so this, this is the complicating part of the story. So whilst I can celebrate my childhood, I, I had no choice. So, mm. so there is no other conversation in the schoolyard. There is no other game but kick to kick in the schoolyard. Uh, there is nothing else on the TV but this football game being replayed on a, on a Saturday night. Um, the conversations in your, in your household, your parents' workplace are all um, uh, geared around this game. And through the 60s and 70s and the 80s, a lot of people obviously had this childhood in common. It would actually take an extraordinary act of will to choose something else, I think, in that environment when you're a kid. But that, that world is obviously no longer with us. The world that we're in today, most people... Uh, most new arrivals are carrying all sorts of identities on their smartphone, whether it's the whether it's a political party in their in their mother country, or whether it's a team in a third country, or whether it's a soccer player or, or a basketball player. So the challenge uh, for footy clubs and basically for every cultural institution in Australia is to find a new way to engage the new arrival, uh, not 
knowing that you're never going to be able to trap them again like you could um, behind the tariff wall and behind, you know, behind the bubble of the old VFL. But the, the thing that the clubs are doing well now, and it's not just uh, uh, the AFL clubs, the rugby, some of the rugby league clubs are also doing this as well. Literally you can't survive in these national competitions and in these very fragmented cultural markets without mass membership. And the only way to get a mass membership now is to let everybody in. And the, the sort of thing that sort of not so much drives success on field but drives um, relevance and viability off field is a whole lot of people wanting to buy a season's ticket. And most of the clubs now understand that if they don't engage with the new arrivals. Now, interesting story on this side of the Yarra, uh, North Melbourne and Western Bulldogs are absolutely fantastic um, sort of role models and engagement with refugee communities. Uh, if you asked me 20 or 30 years ago would this have happened, it would have been next to impossible to have happened because those clubs in those days, doors are closed. If you banged on it and said, can I join? I go, oh, yeah, I suppose so. But you're not going to be represented on the field by anybody that's playing for you. But sure, come along. Now it's we can't survive any other way because the country's changing that rapidly. Mm. To maintain market share or to maintain, I hate using the jargon like that, but Mm. to actually maintain relevance, social relevance, you've got to look like the country at large. Like this kind of comes to the point that, I was so fascinated. You talk about this kind of ongoing struggle that football has with itself. And I think we saw this come again recently. Um, recently, Basha, Hawley and yep. um, Saad from Essendon, two Muslim players, two really prominent Muslim players in the game, uh, joined their captains in the middle of the MCG to shake hands when the coin was being tossed at the start of a game to, um, it, it, I guess it was just a message of kind of peace and unity yep. in the current political climate. And a lot of people wrote about this incident and saying politics has no place in footy, yet footy is inextricably linked to conversations about race and about politics. And you talk in detail about um, the Nikki Winmar and Michael Long and what they did for um, racial discrimination yep. for Indigenous players in the game. Do you think that football is any closer to... S- I guess to solving this within itself, to being both a political force and also just being football. football, Yeah, yeah, these are interesting questions. The bureaucracy that runs the game, the AFL, uh, was always on the wrong side of these debates. It was on the wrong side of the Michael Long debate until it was sort of dragged to the centre. It was not only on the wrong side of the Adam Goods debate, it actually accelerated the booing by not acting when it did. So I'm not confident that the AFL, if we're talking about the bureaucracy, is ever going to get this. Um, but then I'm a bit wary of the AFL, if it ever got it, um, the power that it had would be disproportionate to what it is. It's only a game. Yeah. Bear in mind, like it's a, I, I don't want to unleash them. Yeah. Um, at the moment, they sort of feel entitled to unleash because they're getting, um, they're getting au pairs off uh, detention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Gillen, if you're listening, um, but, you know, you put yourself in it. <laughs> you wanted to get involved. <laughs> But, but the clubs, the clubs is literal representation, li- literal representatives of their people. So in the old days, in the Depression and, you know, in that sort of post-war uh, period uh, where suburbs and sort of the, the sons and the grandsons and the granddaughters of, um, of tribal footy supporters saw the club as their representative, that was old monocultural Australia. The clubs today have to reflect at some point what the country looks like to survive. I think I mentioned that earlier. Mm. So they're going to literally be dragged into these debates whether they like it or not. Now, an interesting thing that uh, Peggy O'Neill told me in sort of interview for the book, uh, and Brendan Gale reinforced this because they've done a lot of research on it, the members, the reason why members join clubs today is different to what it used to be. So they want the club to represent them. 
So they want the club to be on the right side of social debates. They don't want their players acting up. They don't want to be embarrassed by their players. That's what it feels like. Often I think the commentary around the game doesn't reflect how the fans feel about it right now. Yeah, so who are we talking about commentary? Um, How long have we got? (laughs) A couple of minutes. (laughs) So a couple of parallels that I didn't write about in the book, which I sort of, uh, it would have been a cheap shot, but I I do want to discuss it. Ex-footballers as commentators are the most removed people from the game. Yes, I totally agree. I talk about this often. They are as close as you can get to that Sky After Dark crowd, literally disconnected from what it is you're describing, even though you were part of it once in another era. Uh, uh, You know, you'd like to drag some of these blokes back into a club room today and see how a club organises itself. You'd like to take them out to some of the other community group, community work that a lot of clubs do, and they wouldn't fit in, of course, because that's not that's not their world. Their world is shouting for attention, like a lot of people, unfortunately, in the, media, <laughs> in the commentary class, or the cranky terriot, as I like to call it. <laughs> There's a lot more questions we could ask. Oh, you can ask one more if you okay, want to. I, yeah. I, know th- I know that you've got, got, win tonight. I know that he's got another one. <laughs> oh, no, the, the, one of the central arguments of the book is that football clubs... Um, uh, football is increasingly filling the void in our public life that was yeah. created by loss of faith in our political and religious institutions. That seems to imply, though, that if politics was less dysfunctional, if people were more engaged with politics, they would care less about football. Uh, I think they'd still care about football, but maybe they wouldn't have thrown the street party after Richmond won that premiership last year. And maybe the fans <laughs> of Leicester Footy Club, in the soccer club in England, or Philadelphia uh, in the in the gridiron, or Chicago White Sox, or I think globally you've seen a number of these sort of mass mass outbreaks after after um, drought breaking pennants or premierships. So it's 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 not just a local observation; it's a global observation. Um, but the counterfactual is. There were periods where you, you thought your democracy was more relevant and I don't think the old VFL and the AFL was doing as well in the 80s and 90s. I mean, I try not to idealise the 80s and 90s, but just relative to today, it was obviously we had a much more functioning democracy and a lot more issues were, were contested and policies stuck between changes of government. So uh, I guess uh, maybe take it around the other way. One of the things that I've found in this book is by writing about sport, I was actually free to then bring the hammer down at the end of the book about leadership. Mm. And I needed to find, strange you sort of come to this thing, I could have written another earnest book telling everyone how bad they are (laughs) running the country, but we all would have done exactly the same thing, put it away thinking that's a very worthy title, just leave it to one side. I can get a conversation going via via the metaphor of the game. And, And by the way, there's a typo on the cover. I don't know if people have noticed the typo. How Richmond's premiership singular can save Australia. Hey. Oh. We're going to have to. That's we're going to have to do a reprint. <laughs> that seems like a good moment. Which to leave in the book is entitled "The Football Solution: How Richmond's Premiership Can Save Australia." Is out through Ping, and we've been talking to George Mclejesus. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, Three Triple R, one hundred two point seven in Melbourne. You're tuned to Breakfasters. It's Friday. Going out, might be going out for the weekend, want something fun to do. Oh, yeah. Fun topic, to fun game to play with your mates when oh, you're yeah. out. Have you ever played the disdain game? No. No, but it sounds like something we'd enjoy. Yes. yes. And I think you, you would both be very good at it. Jeff, I think you would be... He feels disdain for lots of people. <laughs> I think you'd be great at it. I'm just playing it right now. Mm. So What do you have to do? So the way the game works is... 
but you have to get someone to give you lots of compliments and be really nice and you show them nothing but disdain. Oh. Oh. So give us an example. So, for example, um, like you, I'll, you give me lots of compliments and I'll just give you disdain. Uh, your new haircut looks very nice. Mm-hmm. Um, Do I go as well? Am I complimenting you as well? Just we'll just to... focus on Jeff at the oh, moment. Right, yeah. uh, I don't know. You're always in a good mood. You seem in a very good mood today. That's a compliment. Oh, man, if you could see Jez's face. <laughs> so like a shark. <laughs> so I don't, I don't You're I like, so angry. I don't think I like this game very much. Okay, th- thanks for your time, Jeff. So it's fun, isn't it? Is it? It's kind of scary. You look like no. a teacher when the teacher was, you're trying to give an excuse to a teacher and they just stare at you. Mm. And then, but then, so it's fun for when you play disdain. So it's like, I'll flip it around. Right. Okay. Ready, Jeff. Now it's your turn to give disdain. Okay. Um, <clears throat> let me try and think of a compliment. <laughs> it's not so easy, is it? You did just say to her, you're always in a good mood <clears throat> as a compliment. <laughs> Uh, Jeff, I don't tell you this very often, but can I just say what an absolute privilege and honour it is to work with you every morning. When you do interviews, it, I, I can't tell you how much easier it is in I have so much confidence in you carrying an interview because you're so smart and you're so intelligent. So thank you for that. Uh, all right. Sorry. Just stay in depth. Just stay. He's already. He's smiling. He was so overwhelmed by how nice that compliment was. That's how you get him. That's how you win. I don't understand this game. Where, where and how do you play this game? Do you just do it to people? Yeah, you just with your mates. Like we're mean. doing right it's now. Sit mean. around and do this to each other. You, do you want to go? Do I give disdain or do, am I going to get a compliment? You, right, Jeff, you give Sarah oh. compliments. Jeff's not very good at complimenting. I feel like this He's isn't your game. He's not good at either part of I this know. game. <laughs> But I think you you've got to have a turn of like being well, no, you plain do it to, I don't want it to be nasty to me. You you do it. No, you're giving me a compliment. Yeah, but then you'll do something nasty to no, me. No, I'm I so just nasty. sit there like Jez, like a sourpuss. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, we can both give you compliments. Well, if I, you. Oh, yeah, come at me. No, I was just thinking yesterday about how much I enjoy the music on this show. Thanks to you. It's not very good for radio, but I just rolled my eyes. Yeah, it was pretty good, bro. Yeah, see, you're very yeah, good at it. Fun. It's the worst game. God. It's really good, isn't it? I love being the person giving the stain. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun to do it. I've had mates that have done it, um, like we've been at, at a pub, and I had someone, I was in the middle of giving them a compliment, and they turned around and walked out and never came back. Oh, <laughs> Some so mic drop just, in this game. You've got to win. That is like yeah. an all-time win. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just went, mm-hmm. And then half mid-sentence went, mm-hmm, and then picked up their backpack and left. That is so good. Love. So, do, Jeff, do you get it now? Do you understand how it this is game a bit, works? It is a bit visual, though. It, yeah. Yes. But if you chuck in a little, mm. uh, just a little, mm, okay, thank, thank you. <laughs> sure. No, I, yeah. I, I, I get it. It just, just seems a bit of a nasty game. But. No, it's not nasty. People know that it's all, it's lovely. You get lots of compliments. And people know that you're just acting at the end of it. Do you want to give, you, give Jeff another go? Oh, I, was, I forgot that was a compliment I was going to use, you used already. Oh, well, oh, just I, do the same one again because he fails. <laughs> now he knows what's coming. Jeff, I'm always really impressed by how good you are at doing interviews. It makes my job a lot easier and I, I just think that you're a really smart person. Now I'm just rolling my eyes at that because that is just... A Jeff, you nearly had it. You nearly, you had, nearly it. had it. 
You just, you, and then you just <laughs> gave up. Like I was rehashing his compliment, but I, was, I didn't mean it. <laughs> it's a great game. You're terrible. No, okay, so you, you do want to Geraldine now. All right. Uh, Geraldine, I, you always make me uh, laugh a lot, and I like that when I'm really sad, you give laugh, me really... Do I? Yeah, <laughs> really nice. You, when I'm sad, you give me really nice hugs, and yeah, I, okay. your empathy is really a beautiful thing. Do it's get, a really beautiful part of your personality. Do you I, get sad a I lot? just find you really... Be- I don't cry as much as you cry, so I really love the empathy that you give. Hmm. <laughs> okay. I tried it. Okay. See, the trick there was to talk about how nice her emotions were. To oh, you know? yeah. yeah. Yeah, very clever. I thought so. It's a good game, isn't it? You cry a lot. <laughs> you sad a lot. Yeah, I know. I'm like, mm, you're almost, <laughs> almost getting it wrong there, but that's okay. I can see you brought it back around. Yeah, I did. Thanks. It's good. Anyway, that's a fun treat for everyone to <laughs> do. <laughs> to play this weekend at the bar. <laughs> that's yeah. right. If you're a long car journey. Yeah. That's... It's good. You know what we're going to do? Now people are going to text us. Uh, like, are we going to get a bunch of texts that are really nice followed by really mean texts as well? Oh, now you've put the idea out there. I know, the disdain game. Mm. Give it a shot. <laughs> yeah, have a go. Are you just giving me disdain right now? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, the game's over, no more. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.